across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming Brexit's coming home. Now, I don't apologise for that because that's the way I'm feeling. In just four days' time, we will have left the European Union and it's looking good already as the whining is reduced to a tiny handful of millionaires, champagne socialists and members of the acting fraternity. The rest of the country is preparing to celebrate slamming the door shut on the likes of Leo Varadkar and his petty, small-minded view of Britain and the world. Unlike the T-shock of Ireland, a nation that had to be rescued financially by the European Union and which had to have the euro imposed on it against its will, I am not one of those people who thinks that we are a small country. Quite the reverse, in fact. The United Kingdom has the equivalent GDP of 18 of the EU's smallest countries. Uh, it is the biggest export destination for the European Union. It is the fifth largest export destination in the world. And it has the third most potent defence force on the entire planet. So if only the arrogant EU wasn't in such decline, I might even feel sorry for them. Stuart Jackson joins me this morning, former Tory MP for Peterborough, to celebrate the big party we are all going to have come Friday at 11pm. 03444991000. As ever, I would like you to join us uh, in celebrating that. We'll also be touching upon, of course, uh, the ridiculousness of Prince Andrew, a man uh, who gave an interview to the BBC in the hopes that he would actually somehow get himself off the hook from the uh, charges that he was consulting with a paedophile uh, by the name of Jeffrey Epstein. It turns out now, even though he told Emily Maitlis that he would be more than happy to cooperate with the American authorities into any investigation as to what went on uh, with human trafficking and all the rest of it, so far, uh, the FBI have had absolutely nothing from him. They've had no cooperation from Prince Andrew, uh, the Queen's favourite son, and uh, they don't look as if they're going to get any either. His words at the time were, if my legal advisers tell me it's a good idea, uh, then I will do it. So we can only assume from that, presumably, uh, that his legal advisers have told him it's not a very good idea. Also coming up this morning, I'm finally going to meet ecotricity millionaire Dale Vince, the man who paid Jolien Moore on thousands of pounds to stop a no-deal Brexit in the Scottish courts. Eco-businessman and owner of Forest Green Rovers, Dale, will be attempting to win the argument on climate change. I'll give him two chances, slim to none. I'll also be asking him what he's going to do now that the EU won't be able to fund his business anymore. 0344 499 1000. Later on, we'll be discussing why we shouldn't talk about sport in front of women because they don't understand it and why artists now want to be called creative practitioners for heaven's sake. And I'll be telling you why the BBC now has to fire Gary Lineker, a man who makes from the public purse, believe it or not, £144,000 a month. That's right, £144,000 a month. That means you could literally buy a Ferrari once a month for an entire year. We're live streaming today again on YouTube and Facebook so you can watch us as well as listening to us. And of course, uh, we want to hear from you, the voices of common sense. You're listening to me right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it was only a few moments ago that I met Dale Vince for the first time and I'm still standing. Um, we shook hands and uh, as we always do, um, we will now have a conversation about a great many things which we will probably not agree much about, uh, but we'll be very civilised. You and I, I think, have been the uh, the kind of gold standard of how to argue about Brexit over the course of the last, uh, what, six months or so? Oh. <clears throat> yeah, uh, well, I, yeah, if you say so. Um, we certainly have kept it civilised. I agree with you about that. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know any other way to discuss stuff. Well, exactly you know? right. Exactly right. Well, welcome to the studios, first of all. Uh, welcome to, to, to London. You've come up, is it Gloucester sort of way? You, yeah, you Gloucester are, way, yeah. Gloucester way. So how did you get here today? <laughs> That's my first gonna, question. I knew you were going to ask me that, and I was going to say helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you didn't come by helicopter, did you? Did you? No. No, did you come by electric motorcycle? Yeah. Yeah, OK. Yeah. Just you on your own, then? Where, uh, have, you, where have you parked it? <laughs> I folded it up and put it in my bag. OK, because, I mean, you have taken a bit of flack from some of my listeners who've always said that, you know, it's all very well for Dale to talk about having an electric motorbike, but not everybody can afford them. Uh -huh. um, but I suppose we should really kick off with the timely conversation, which is about Brexit, because on Friday, Brexit is happening. Um, are you one of those who's now basically just accepted that it's happened and, and we'll see where it all goes? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no point not accepting that it's happened or, or it's about to happen. It's happening, isn't mm. it? I mean, I get that completely. And, uh, yeah, we just have to live with the consequences, don't we? I think, you know, we've got bigger issues to deal with in climate change and Brexit is going to hamper that for us. Um, 
you know, for me, the silver lining in all of this is that Boris Johnson and, and the others, you know, the Brexiteers in government now have to own this. There's, there's no more excuses they can make. They can't blame the courts, Parliament, the EU, anybody else. For the next five years, all of the impacts of Brexit will become clear and they have to own it at the next election. Yeah, I think so. But, of course, all of those predictions that have been made over the course of the last year or two by people who didn't want to see it happening... Um, are still predictions. And so we still don't really know whether those dire predictions are, are going to happen. I mean, you see people like Lord Adonis talking about how I'm not going to handle the 50p coin uh, because it's got some words on it that I don't like. I mean, you start to go, really? I mean, is that is that where we are now with political discourse? Yeah, I think uh, the reduction in GDP of our country is not a prediction. That's been measured at $130 billion since the referendum vote. And the forecast is by the end of this year, the total cost of Brexit so far will be two hundred billion. And yet and we are, and yet we are <coughs> the fastest uh, growing economy in Europe. Could have been faster. That yeah, but you can't billion, complain about that, can you? Surely. That two hundred billion. Let me just say this: is equivalent to everything we've paid the EU in the last forty-seven years. It may well be, but if everything is so bad about Brexit, how come that Germany, France, and all the other European economies are performing even worse than ours? Yeah. I, you haven't I, got an answer for that. I don't have an answer for that. No, that's a you. peculiar way to look at it, Mike. Well, 200, it's not, though. 200 billion, that's what i got to say to you. You know, we've, our GDP has shrunk by something like between 2 and 3%. It's unnecessary pain. Why have you done that to ourselves? What no, have but, we gained? No, but what I'm saying is, is that you're putting 2 and 2 together and making 7. Because yeah. what you're saying is, is that Brexit has caused it. What I'm telling you is that economies around the world have been performing pretty badly, right? And particularly in Europe. And for us to have been performing better than everywhere else in Europe, I could conclude, is because of Brexit. But the experts who have looked at this have said $130 billion is the cost so far of Brexit. Our economy has shrunk further than it would have done had we not voted to leave the EU. You can't well, I mean, that. you know, we've put $150 billion into the NHS every single year. You know, you might argue that that's money better spent, but nevertheless, it's $150 billion. It's still a very large amount of money. So actually what you're talking about is less than one year's budget for the NHS. Oh, it's okay, you see what I mean? You can talk about... This <coughs> is the great, the great thing about politics. Let's throw it away, then. Well, it's not about throwing it away. But what the have we gained is, from Brexit so far? What have we gained? Mm. Well, we've made a lot of people shut the hell up. We've managed to get <laughs> lots of idiots out of Parliament who voted against the will of the people and who then had to take a hit at the by-elections, uh, sorry, at the uh, general elections, that, that, that they were misrepresenting the people in. And so I think we've got a much more now honest Parliament, which is made mm. up of people who were voted and put there as a, as a result of, of the Brexit uh, discussions that were had. It was definitely a Brexit election, I get that. It and was. The, and the previous one wasn't, and the referendum kind of threw a spanner in the democratic works, didn't it? But it was a close vote, so I don't think you could just slag off uh, you know, half of Parliament for being undemocratic because they had principles, values and beliefs which they didn't give up because of the referendum vote. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that they got the, the sack, effectively, by the people <laughs> who didn't agree with them. That's and that's the way democracy works, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's the way After that's all. What the election did. So, so now that we are about to walk into um, um, a sort of independence world, if you like, um, what do you think is going to... I mean, you're a businessman, for example. I mean, Ecotricity um, is a green energy company. I've been told by people, and I have no idea whether it's true, that you were getting grants from the European Union, were you? No. So you're not going to lose out then? No. So your business is going to be fine? Well, I think our whole economy is shrinking and will continue to shrink. There'll be impacts, there'll be problems. And, you know, we live in this country, so we'll feel those impacts in the way that anybody in this country does. We have no particular link to the EU that will cause the problem. We don't export to the EU, for example. Uh, we don't have grants or subsidies from the EU. So, you know, it's fairly neutral in that respect for us. So why will you do worse um, in the next, say, 12 months economically as a company? Well, I think the whole economy will, Mike. And when you're a business in an economy that's struggling, you know, you feel the impact of that. You can't help but that. You know, it affects all of us. So here at Talk Radio, we're actually growing. And one of the reasons we're growing is because we're doing something that's quite popular and people like it. And so more and more people are listening. So we're making more and more money. Maybe you're just in the wrong business. Yeah, maybe that's right. We should start up our own radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could. I mean, you know, the point, the reason why people are coming to us and not watching Sky and not listening to some of our other rivals is because they're fed up listening to people moaning and groaning about how awful everything is going to be and actually would rather listen to a slightly more upbeat message which is all about you know britain actually being a standalone country and being quite good at certain things 
Yeah, I mean, we are good at certain things. No, no dispute there. And people like your message, Mike. I get that, and that's that's good for you and good for your station. Um, but you know, and as long as you keep it accurate and truthful, I've got no. Well, I, with I it. no, no, I don't know any other way to do it. I mean, as it says on my Twitter feed, it's the most balanced uh, show on the radio. <laughs> Which, is, as you could attest to. Let's talk a little bit about climate change. Uh, we've just been uh, in Davos, where Prince Charles took a private jet uh, to tell us all that we should be paying more green taxes. Okay. The, the issue that people have with, I think, climate change is that there's no question that the dial has been moved, I think, over the course of the last 12 months. Whether you like Extinction Rebellion or not, they've certainly brought attention to it in a way that perhaps people, not everybody was thinking. Greta Thunberg, whether you like her or not, has made an impact. However, I think if all, all that comes from it is more green taxes, people are going to say, enough already. We're paying a lot of green taxes. Why are we paying more? Yeah, well, there's an interesting question. You, when you said we've been to Davos, you didn't mean talk radio, did you? No, we didn't go to no, Davos, no, no. But, I mean, we I were... I didn't go either. No, my daughter was there, though. Really? She was there, yeah. So, technically, the Graham family was mm. represented. Impressive. Yeah. Well, look, um, I mean, this She whole... was working. She wasn't on a jolly with Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Better than being on a jolly with Prince Andrew. Uh, well, that's true, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, this whole thing about green taxes, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like a misrepresentation of what's actually happening. If, if you look at uh, the way we tax and subsidise energy in Britain, for example, uh, we spend twice as much supporting fossil fuels as we do green energy, 10 billion a year versus 5 billion a year. But we um, all pay a green tariff, don't we, on, on our energy bills? Yeah, there are green taxes, you could call them that. They're like stealth taxes because what the government have done is create legislation that causes energy companies to charge uh, the two or three right. different versions of them. And uh, where does that money actually go? Does it just go to the general exchequer? Um, some does. Like the climate change levy, for example, goes to the exchequer. The renewables obligation goes to generating projects. The feed-in tariff uh, goes to uh, most of it, I think, to people with solar panels on the rooftops, mm. uh, which is a aggressive kind of green tax because that increase in energy bill is is for everybody so people that can't afford solar panels can't even afford their energy bills right. a lot of the time are paying uh, better off people to have solar panels so i think you know feeding tariff was a mistake uh, they're the three i can think of the new one on the block is the contract for difference and that's actually going to support uh, the nuclear industry more than anything else if they ever get hinkley built and what's your view on the nuclear industry in terms of it being built and also it being built by the chinese uh, and the French. And the French. Well, the French have always been involved, haven't they? Yeah, I think it's madness. Um, You're not in favour? Well, I mean, if you look at EDF's track record, I think they've got three projects on the go around the world and collectively they're decades and billions behind budget and, you know, this project will never get built on time or on budget. Um, the, ex the electricity is the most expensive I in the world ever and um, it's coming too late for us to help us uh, reduce carbon emissions to, you know, to halt climate change. Um, and we could have spent the money on far better things. And it's going to leave this toxic legacy of waste for something like 10,000 years. You know, mm. Whichever way you look at it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. But the other thing that a lot of people are critical of as well is the kind of doomsday scenario that we get fed all the time by people like Greta, who talks about how the house is on fire and we're not doing enough about it. And we seem, it seems to me that we're doing more than anybody else in any other country. And I know that that's not an argument which is necessarily one that you would agree with. But mm. my point is always, well... You know, I, if I go to California and I sit in a, in, in a motorway traffic jam, which has got 16 lanes, eight going in either direction, which is uh, the San Diego Freeway, 405 as it's known, uh, the distress way from Los Angeles down to San Diego. I mean, you know, the idea that I don't uh, drive my uh, Range Rover in London in order to sort of save the climate seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? I don't know, it's a funny kind of comparison to making it... Um... <clears throat> well, not really. It's a bit like... No, it's a bit like me saying, look, if I take a thimble full of water out of Lake Michigan um, every single day, uh, will it be able to drain the lake? No, it won't. The thing is, all of the small contributions that we individually make to uh, resource depletion, climate change, whatever you care to mention, they're all adding up. There are like nearly 8 billion of us on the planet now. And there was a time when we could get away with the thought that we can't possibly change uh, the world or the climate because, you know, our individual actions are too small and there aren't that many of us, but there are 8 billion of us now. And we have changed the planet. Yeah, but we most of those 8 billion people are not here. They don't need to be here to have an impact. We all live on the same world. They're here in that sense, <clears throat> aren't they? They are, but as they get more and more um, 
uh, sort of wealthy, and I don't mean that in a in a sense of you know having yachts and flying around in private jets, but you know the world is now a much a much better and richer place. There are fewer people living uh, on less money than there ever were. You know, it's a much more modernised globe, and people as they get more kind of affluent want more stuff. As a, as a general rule, don't they? I mean, in India, for example, people want air conditioning machines now because they can afford them, whereas maybe 15, 20 years ago they couldn't. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people in India that don't even have electricity at the moment and in China as well. And, you know, that's human nature, I guess, to want those things, and that is part of our problem. But who are we to say they can't have them? Well, exactly. That's my point. So, I mean, why, why should we be going without things while other people in, in perhaps more developing countries are asking for more things and getting them? But they have less. Well, that doesn't mean that they should. They should. That we should be giving things up, does it? They're starting with less, aren't they? So what? Are we all <laughs> supposed to be living in some kind of communist state where everybody has the same thing, like the same car, the same fridge, the same cooker? I think actually we've got to acknowledge that we do live in some kind of communal state. We all live on the same planet, and if we don't respect that fact and take notice of the difference we're making, the changes that we're bringing, and if we don't act collectively, then we're going to create a place where none of us can live. No, I get that, but we're not acting collectively. We're acting uh, almost unilaterally in this country, we're the first government and the only government thus far to commit to, uh, to, to carbon neutrality, uh, albeit that by too late for Greta Thunberg to like it. You know, we're the first country uh, and only <coughs> country, as far as I'm aware now, that has the air tax for every time you get on a plane, you pay a green tax to fly. Nobody else does that. You know, we do a lot of things that nobody else does. So we're not really acting collectively. Uh, no, I disagree, Mike. Um, you know, we act through the UN, don't we? We're part of the uh, Paris Climate Accord. I mean, that's like 190 odd nations yeah, of the why, world. But, but none of those 198 nations have done what we've done and are not doing it. Yeah, I think some of them have done much more than we've like, done. Like who? Uh, Germany. They spend three times as much supporting renewable energy as they do supporting fossil they fuels. They still burn coal in Germany, though. Yeah, but they, they have the balance right. We spend twice as much on fossil fuels as we do renewable energy. So we have to address that balance. China. Uh, how many electric buses do you think they have on the road? In China? Uh, well, I don't know, but I can tell you how many coal-fired power stations they build every week. So you only see one side. You've got to look at both sides. 400,000 electric buses on the road in they China. They also eat bats. Do you know how many... You know? Do you know how many I mean, that's have? not a very good thing either, is it? Do you know how many we have? I don't know. It's probably closer to four. But we don't eat bats. It's probably closer to four. Well, so far, we don't have the coronavirus, although I don't know. Um, I've got some news to break for you, by the way, and we'll talk to somebody about this later on. I've got uh, some sad news. Nicholas Parsons uh, has uh, just passed away at the age of 96 after a short illness. He, of course, uh, might be known to many of you uh, as the man who was um, uh, the host of Soul of the Century, amongst other television shows many, many years ago. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you might remember yesterday I started the show, uh, or at least a part of the first hour of the show, with a bit of a rant about the BBC. I was not happy that the BBC had managed to mistake uh, LeBron James uh, for Kobe Bryant, the man who was killed tragically in a helicopter crash uh, in uh, Southern California the night before last. Now, uh, the BBC have made many mistakes in their time. The BBC currently are at the heart of an argument about whether or not their licence fee can be justified. Well, guess what? Gary Lineker has now entered the fray. Gary Lineker has given an interview to The Guardian in which he basically says that the licence fee should be made voluntary. Now, Gary Lineker makes something like £1.7 million a year out of the BBC. That's the equivalent of £141,666 per month, every single month. That means Gary Lineker can basically buy himself a Ferrari every single month off the back of the BBC licence payers. That's you, that's me, that's everyone that lives in the country that has any form of television because you are forced to pay the BBC licence fee. You are not asked to pay it. You are not asked if you'd like to make a contribution towards it. You are told if you do not pay it, you will go to prison. People who are elderly are taking to court every single month of every single year in this country because for some reason they've made a mistake over their TV licence. People are getting locked up as a result of not paying their TV licence. And quite frankly, I think it's an absolute disgrace. For Gary Lineker, a man who has got very, very wealthy off the back of those licence fee payers, I think it's a disgrace that he's now dissing the organisation which gives him all that money. He's basically saying what I would say in this situation, don't bother listening to the advertisers, 
Don't bother listening to any of the adverts on this station. They're all rubbish. I wouldn't bother. Don't spend any of your money on them. Instead, spend it on something else. Gary Lineker is basically um, doing the sort of thing that you should never do on your own doorstep. And I think Gary Lineker now is gone beyond the pale. I'd like to ask him what he meant by this uh, interview that he gave to The Guardian, in which he said that the licence fee should become voluntary. But I can't ask him that, because despite the fact that he is a public figure, despite the fact that I pay his wages, he's blocked me on Twitter. He blocked me on Twitter because I asked him a question. The question was, I hope you're paying enough tax on all of that money you make from Walker's crisps. And he didn't answer me. Instead, he blocked me. Gary Lineker is a disgrace. The BBC are still a disgrace. But the good news is he said it all just in time for Plank of the Week, which goes out later on today. So he may make it to the top ten of Plank of the Week. And he may even make it to the top ten of Plank of the Month. Gary Lineker, goodbye, good riddance. We'll still watch Match of the Day if you're not there. Don't go around telling people that they should volunteer to pay you. I'll tell you what, I volunteer to not pay your salary. How about that? And you can go from 141000 a month to zero. Thanks very much indeed. Let's talk about Prince Andrew. Norman Baker is here. Norman, a very good morning to you. Hello. Is he Plank of the Week, Prince Andrew? He could be a contestant. Well, do you know what? Prince Andrew was my Plank of the Year for 2019, and that was how all this thing, this whole organisation, Plank of the Week, started, because we, we decided that Prince Andrew, having given that interview to Emily Maitlis, and then thinking that that would make the story go away, was such a ridiculous decision um, that it could only have been made by an idiot. It now appears, though, that this story may be more serious than we thought, doesn't it? It is more serious because he's, he's, uh, he's come out, of course, in this country and said, I, I will cooperate with the FBI, I will even give evidence if they ask me to give evidence. And he's, he's given that story to make everybody feel good about him over here. And now the truth is out, which yes. is that, uh, the exact opposite of that, which he's refusing to cooperate. And zero cooperation is what the FBI have said, and he's clearly not intending to help them at all. No, quite. Because, I mean, the thing is, if the FBI have said that they've, got, they've approached him and he basically has given them what, in their words, is zero cooperation... All I remember is the, the clip in which he said, uh, if my legal advisers tell me that I should talk to the FBI, then I will. I can only now uh, draw the conclusion that his legal advisers have told him not to. Well, that's a, that's a logical conclusion to reach, as a matter of fact. But, um, you know, Prince Andrew's whole uh, involvement with this affair is rather peculiar. You've got Virginia Roberts, or whatever her name is these days, um, saying that um, they were closely intimate. Yes. Uh, his flight logs show they're in the same place at the same time. He's, there's a photograph of him with his arm around her, although he says he has no recollection of, of meeting her, and denies the photograph is real, which is a bit surreal. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the thing doesn't stack up very well, does it? Well, it doesn't. And also, you know as well as I do, there is such a thing as a non denial denial as they used to say in the Watergate uh, days you yeah. know to say that I don't recall meeting somebody is not the same as saying I never met that woman no that's exactly right but you know the whole thing about Prince Andrew is uh, it, to be honest things to high heaven and as I set up my book is not just all the business with uh, Jeffrey Epstein it's all his financial dealings and association with dodgy dictators around the world well, exactly right. But what, I mean, what has he got to lose here? Because, I mean, surely, I mean, one of the many questions that people have put to me is surely it's easy enough to go back through the logs uh, of the Royal Protection Squad, if nobody else, to check where he was uh, on that famous night, whether he was at Tramp or whether he was, in fact, at the Pizza Express uh, in Woking or whatever, you know? Well, absolutely, it's easy to find out. And those things will all be recorded. They'll be recorded for all sorts of reasons, not least of all for mundane reasons in terms of paying the uh, Royal Protection staff. They have to know where they are. It's on their overtime logs. Right. So it'll all be found. Um, I, I've got a feeling that uh, he doesn't want to look in case the evidence uh, he finds is not uh, to his liking. Well, quite. But also there may well be other uh, things that come out, presumably, if he is quizzed by the FBI, because they have other information which we maybe don't know about yet. Well, what we know about the Americans and the FBI is they will, they will rigorously pursue these matters. They will pursue them no matter who the people are, which is how it should be in a judicial system. And they won't bother if he's a prince of the realm. Uh, there's no such bother about that. No. And they'll, 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 try and, they'll try and find out the truth. And uh, I've got a feeling that on this side of the Atlantic, there are one or two individuals who don't want the truth to be found out. No, exactly. And where does that leave the FBI? Does it mean that they can come here and forcibly make him speak to them or not? No, they can't. I mean, if he, if he lands in the U.S., he can be subpoenaed to turn up in court. It's a, it's a bit like the reverse of that uh, that case of that American diplomat's wife yes. who's escaped to the U.S. Mm. and won't come back. I mean, Andrew's escaped over here and won't go over there again. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it'd be pretty embarrassing for a member of the royal family to be basically persona non grata in the United States of America uh, and similarly unable to go to even an event at the ambassador's residence in Regent's Park. 
Well, that's exactly right. I mean, because, of course, that's American territory, yeah. really, uh, and he could, in theory, be, be held there. Well, exactly. I, I mean, mean how embarrassing is that? If you've got a member of the royal family, senior member of the royal family, whatever you want to call him, he still is, um, being unable to go to a, a Western democratic country. Well, exactly so. And you've got, you've got Prince Harry, of course, in Canada, who's, descent, who's distanced himself from the royal family as well. You know, this, this whole thing leads me to conclude that we need to look at the royal family generally. It's true the royal family should be a narrow group of people based with the Queen, Prince Philip, then you've got um, Charles and Camilla, then you've got um, William and then Prince George. That's what it should be. That's what the royal family should be. You know, all the other people really are irrelevant to the royal family. Look at the royal families in Belgium, in Luxembourg, uh, in, in, uh, in Sweden, in Norway. They don't have all these vast numbers. Mm. You know, the front cover of my book, there's 44 of them on the balcony in Buckingham Palace. What are they all doing there? I know. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, one of the things that I thought was uh, originally a bit of a mad idea, but I'm warming to it, Peter Hitchens from The Mail on Sunday wrote a piece about how he believed that we should keep the monarchy but just get rid of the royal family. So that basically what you would have is once the Queen passes on, you would have a sort of titular head who was some kind of, um, I don't know, sort of regimental person who would hand out uh, gongs to people and, and appear at, at various ceremonies. But there would be no actual subsidised royal family. I'm beginning to think that's not a bad idea. Well, it's a bit like the royal families in, in, uh, in other countries yeah. which are vastly cheaper than our royal family. Mm. And actually what he's describing is what's called a precedent. Uh, it's quite normal in many countries to have a precedent who is ceremonial, separate from the political arrangements. It's not a good idea to have a president who's also uh, effectively a prime minister, which is what they have in America. That's not a good idea. But, you know, in Germany, for example, or Ireland, these sorts of places, they have presidents who, who cut ribbons and, uh, and, and do ceremonial things, and they don't get involved in politics. And it's good to have that separation, but you don't necessarily need... 44 people in the balcony to carry it out. Yeah, but all of these stories are going are gonna to feed into that Republican machine, aren't they? I mean, basically, there's very little justification now for, for certainly Harry and Meghan to be part of it. Very little justification for Andrew to be part of it. Princess Anne uh, is getting to a point where she's not going to be able to do too much. Prince Philip, uh, obviously, has more or less retired. The Queen is getting pretty old. Um, I'm not really looking forward to King Charles, I have to say. No, well, I think uh, Charles isn't a very good um, history in terms of um, uh, in terms of royal personages. He's the last one that his head chopped off, and he was mm. the first of Charles II. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not a not a helpful um, precedent. No, no I mean, I think. But Charles also, I mean, the idea that Prince Charles goes in a private jet to Davos, where he addresses oh, the throngs yeah. of what the wealthy, tells us all we should be paying more taxes, and then shakes hands with Greta Thunderbird. Well, the, the fact is, I mean, Charles's attitude towards it is rather feudal. He mm. thinks that uh, you know we should be all out there as peasants, you know, scything the grass yes. without involving any carbon emissions, while he does what he wants. I mean, that's that's a pretty odd attitude to take, and not one that's going to go down very well. He seems to be completely blind to his own behaviour. Mm. Exactly right. And what is the future for Harry and Meghan? Because um, presumably they still have yet to work out what to do about this Sussex royal trademark, whether they're going to be able to sell themselves to the highest bidder, whether or not they're going to be trashing the royal family name all over the place in order to make a buck. You know, it's all very, yeah. very distasteful, isn't it? Well, it's just distasteful. But, I mean, I don't mind. If they want to disappear from the royal family, that's their right. If they want to be completely individual and private, you know, a bit like Posh and Bex, you know, named around the world to sell things, that's fine. Yeah, but we but don't give Posh is, and Bex any money unless we, we choose exactly. to buy their stuff. I mean, why the hell are we still yeah. paying these people any money? Well, that's precisely the point, and they haven't given up HRH. They said they're not using it, but they've kept it. Now, the reason that's important is because if you keep HRH, which they have done, mm. it means they qualify for free security, it means they qualify for free travel, it means they're back to the Buckingham Palace and, and, the, and the staff there. They haven't given up very much at all. And do you know something else? If you work out how much security is going to cost in Canada... They're going to cost us more money than yeah. they did before, not less, I more. Know. It's a shocking state of affairs, but it seems to have sort of disappeared off the front pages now as if everybody's going to forget about it. But, you know, it's still quite an important story, isn't it? It's not going to disappear. I mean, it's, they've had a lull for a couple of days, but, you know, the damage has been done and yeah. it's going to eat, eat away. You know, it's going to, there's, a, there's a rotten system there. It's going to eat away at it. And, uh, you know, if Charles has got any sense when he becomes king, then he will do uh, a drastic uh, pruning of the royal family and, and complete change because, mm. you know, in the end, the tree that doesn't bend is going to break. Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. Norman, thanks very much indeed. Norman Baker there. Uh, he's the author of a book called And What Do You Do? What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know. Uh, he's a man that uh, I think we should be talking to a lot more on this show about a great many things because he was a former transport minister, uh, former Lib Dem MP, of course. Um, but the Prince Andrew situation has now reared its ugly head again. And surely to heavens, the problem for Prince Andrew is that basically if he's refusing to talk to the FBI and he's going to hide out and not cooperate with them, 
then they're going to come for him. And someday, at some point, he will have to answer their questions. And the sooner he gets that over and done with, the better. Because the longer it takes for him to avoid them, the more it looks like he's got something to hide. And that's going to damage not only him, but the entire royal family. We saw the Queen uh, only around Christmas time trying to rehabilitate Andrew, uh, took him to Sandringham, uh, made sure that she was standing next to him at one point. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, Andrew is a liability. He got mixed up with the wrong people. It may well be that he didn't do anything terrible, but we need to know what he did and who he did it with and why. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, normally speaking, Kate would be on this afternoon at four o'clock with Eamon Holmes, but Eamon's off today, so she's not on. But she's on this show, so at least you get to have your daily dose of Kate Ball. So, Kate, very good afternoon to you. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Afternoon. Now, I've, I've heard some ridiculous things in my life, but this, I have to say, takes the biscuit. I mean, I'm not sure how I can put these people on the planks of the week list, but, I mean, the idea that you're not supposed to talk about football in front of women at work because it might upset them is just ludicrous, isn't it? I I actually had to check the date on this, but it wasn't written in 1972. (laughs) It feels like something that we would have read decades and decades ago. And in intending to try and call out sexism, this this Chartered Management Institute head, Anne Frank, has actually become sexist herself. Yes. She's kind of reversed it on herself. I think it's totally ridiculous. The fact that she's trying to almost censor football chat in an effort for women not to feel left out. Well, I feel left out if I'm not included in the conversation. So it doesn't matter whether you're a sports fan or not. There are various different sorts of banter or chat within workplaces. The fact that men shouldn't talk about football or women, therefore, shouldn't talk about football, but we should be busy talking about kittens and makeup instead. Yes, knitting. Just insane. I know. Also, had she not heard heard of the fact that there was a rather successful Women's World Cup last year, that there's quite a lot of women who now play football, that actually in America it is the biggest participation sport for women... Um, and that basically people like yourself and, and others have been in the, the business of sports journalism for quite a long time, thank you. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the biggest team sport for girls and women here too. Is it? Right. Yes, and also, you know, 11.7 million viewers watched the England-USA semi-final at the World Cup during the summer. That, that was only beaten by that Gavin and Stacey Christmas special, by the way. Yes. In, well, in e- I mean, even I wrote a double-page so, spread in a newspaper yeah. about it. So if she thinks we can't join in, she's got another thing coming. The thing that really alarmed me, Mike, and and this is just where it gets utterly bonkers, you know, I can sort of see her opinion if she's talking about men having chats and excluding people and not being aware that people aren't included and maybe changing the conversation or being open to other sorts of conversation. I can sort of see where that comes from if it's just football chat and only football chats that you can engage with your workmates on. But when she says that it's very easy for football chat, banter, VAR talk, uh, to extend to slapping each other on the back and talking about men's conquests at the weekend. She just completely lost me because I've never worked, and I've worked in kitchens, I've worked in accountancy departments, I mean, I've worked a ton of different jobs, and I have never, ever seen a man talk about a refereeing decision or VAR and and that lead on to chat about their sexual conquests. I mean, how does she how does she make that work? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's obviously a woman who perhaps has not spent very much time in the company of men because, you know, I've also got some news for her that, as you say, um, you know, maybe in 1972 that was what a lot of men did, but I don't think there's too many of them doing it now. No, I mean, clearly she's never spent much time in an office. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged with loads of women involved in football on Twitter and loads of women who aren't. Tons of my friends do not like football. Do they feel excluded when, when uh, football comes up? No. In fact, my other half doesn't really like football. He's not a close football, close follower of football. What does he do if football chat comes up in his office? He doesn't engage and he starts to chat about something he is engaged in. Yeah. You know, football chat then therefore can exclude men as well. The fact is, if we got involved in every bit of banter going on in the office, we'd never get anything done. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two blokes in our office, right, who continually talk about Charlton Athletic, right, which nobody else is interested in at all. And whenever they talk about it, everybody just walks out of the room because it's so boring. Yeah, exactly. Love Island's a good one. Game of Thrones is another. I don't watch either of them, Mike. Do I feel left out when they when people talk about them? No. It might prick my interest. I might laugh or scoff. Right. But I'll just move the conversation on or I just won't get involved. You know, 
people have a choice about whether they get involved. Yeah, I mean, I'm not one of those people that likes to talk an awful lot in the office, to be honest, and you might think I'm a bit antisocial. You but... do most of your talking on air. Well, exactly. I mean, I don't, I, believe it or not, I don't actually like to talk much when I'm off the radio, really. I mean, I'm quite happy sitting oh, really? in complete silence, although uh, the mother of my children might differ from you on that one, but, you know, <laughs> uh, she her, her constant refrain is, you're not on the bloody radio now. Shut up, you know, but um, I don't, I mean, I don't really engage in a lot of sort of banter in the office because I'm, I'm, I come here to work, you know, so I don't come here for yeah, social activity. Yeah, I, think, I think also nowadays, Mike, um, I don't know whether you think this, but, you know, office environments are different places. And maybe if it was 1972, yeah. we'd be working in an environment where there was a lot more chat, but there's a lot more professionalism now. I've noticed yes. it in my 20 or so year career, even on a news desk, even in, you know, large organisations. There is a professional working environment, not a lot of chat. And actually, if you're going to have a conversation, you sort of do it in a small area yes. rather than shouting. No one really shouts. No, I mean, I was I was in Fleet Street in the 90s, right? And, and you know, people were, were, were throwing things at each other and kind of, you know, coming back drunk <laughs> from the pub at four o'clock and shouting. <laughs> and there was a couple of fights, I'm pretty sure, in the newsroom at the Daily Express when I was there. You know, I mean, it's just, it would, you wouldn't believe what, what stuff used to go on. yeah. The other argument that um, Anne Frank has got, head of the CMI, is that um, if you are engaged in sports chat with a group, you can be preferred to others over getting promotions. So that if you're part of their little, you know, sports clique, you might have a better chance of getting a promotion if you presumably, according to her, got a male boss. Yes. But if you weren't part of that group. And, and I'd like to, I mean, people sort of say that about smoking, don't they? People who go out, go out to smoke or used to go out to yes. smoke, a lot less people do it now, are more preferred for promotions. I don't, I mean, I just like to think that the world isn't too much like that No, anymore. I mean, I, I was always grow. told that the golf course was the place where lots of deals were done. And I must admit, I mean, I used to play quite a lot of golf and I've never, ever got a job as a result of playing golf with somebody and I've never, ever got a promotion as a result of playing no. golf with somebody, you know? So, I mean, it might be the, the case that in some businesses that, that, was, that was the way it went, but it, you know, it, I'd never experienced that. And have you ever witnessed men talking about sport which then leads on to discussions about their... their sexual conquest because right. you know as i was saying if you're the type of person that's going to brag about a sexual conquest at the weekend you don't need football as a segue well you, you really don't know and uh, to be honest if <laughs> you you're going to be that be, stupid be you better be very anyway. and also you better be a bit careful about who you talk to as well about it wouldn't you yeah of course you have it just so much about this article is completely wrong um broadcaster jackie oatley one of my good football buddies was on it and you know she said look the secret is to discuss it in, in an inclusive way. So just to, for management to basically recognise if someone's staring blankly uh, right. into space and then maybe chip in with another bit of conversation or perhaps steer the conversation towards a different direction if you felt that people in your team were being excluded. Yeah. But being personally, if you're feeling excluded, that's a little bit snowflake for me. That's a little bit yes. worse, I think. It is. I mean, funnily enough, we had a guy that worked here. Uh, we had a guy that worked here in the old building, right, uh, who rather unwisely bragged about his sexual activities one day. And um, he became the laughing stock of the station. And he got this sort of nickname, and everybody called him this nickname, which I'm not going to repeat. Um, but people just used to think the guy was a, a complete and utter wally, you know. Yeah. And he never lived yeah. it down. Every time he walked into yeah. a room... Somebody called him by the nickname, and he just like didn't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just, I just don't get how VAR leads on to sexual conquest. I no, mean, whoever, whoever came up with that. Well, she I think you're doing VAR wrong if that's the way it's working. To be honest, but but apparently she's not a fan of cricket either. Because I guess in this uh, this week, um, and when when uh, the England cricket team, although they seem to be playing cricket every single week of the year now, so I don't quite know yeah, where that where that ends. But um, but seemingly she doesn't want you to talk about cricket either. Well, yeah, she says the big issue is many people aren't sports enthusiasts or cricket fans. Uh, nothing against them, she says. I have I, I, no idea why, why cricket fans are different to sports enthusiasts <laughs> or, you know, quite what she's got against cricket right. fans. Um, I, I, I mean, I must admit, I, I, I do witness a lot less cricket banter than football banter, but that's just because of the popularity of both sports. I, I guess so. And also, I mean, generally speaking, sport is one of those things that kind of does unite people. I mean, for example, yeah, when the Six Nations right. is on, people talk about rugby when they don't normally otherwise do so. When Wimbledon's on, people talk about the tennis, you know. Yeah. You know, it's and one of those things. I mean, coming up as well, Mike, yeah. which will have everyone talking. All of us will ditch our normal TV viewing habits and get, get absorbed in the Olympics. And we'll be discussing yeah. the 100-metre final and 
whatever else is going on. And also, if she takes uh, uh, any time uh, in her life to watch what happens when England play in a major football tournament, and there are big screens all over the, 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 yeah. the towns and the cities of this country, and guess what? It's not all men out there watching it. <laughs> no, no, they totally need it. What? Um, a lot of women I know get engaged in international tournaments. So this is perhaps women who don't follow follow football on a weekly basis, but, you know, enjoy talking about it, but do get really absorbed in the major tournaments. And they love the whole social side of it too. Going out, having some drinks, hosting a barbecue at home. It's right. a chance for people to unite. And we'll be seeing that this summer through the Olympics. We've got um, various Euros, you know, World Cups to come as well. So, yeah, she's, she's sort of forgetting the very elements of sport here, that it does unite that we shouldn't be precious about people talking about sport. We should just move on to another topic if we're not comfortable with it. She's sort of sort of telling us how to suck eggs a bit. Yes, I think that's to right. Me, pretty offensive and pretty sexy. And it tells you what's wrong with the world in which we live sometimes because people have got so much advice for everybody else um, when it's not really <laughs> required. I mean, they've got a lovely rule in golf. If you are given unsolicited advice, it's a penalty shot against your opponent. I.e., if they come up to you and tell you something you didn't want to know, you can actually penalise them. I think we should. I think we should make that a rule for the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely should. <laughs> and what about your podcast, The Offside Rule? Because I presume that that was named after, you know, the people who used to say women can't understand the offside rule. I don't know, the, the, the offside rule. Well, it was actually named after Richard Keyes and Andy Gray. And I don't know if you remember that that, that sort of famous incident oh, at Sky Sports. when they I do indeed. A female lineswoman, as she was at the time, and, and sort of said off air, jokingly about her not knowing the offside rule because of course none of us women know what the offside rule is just like none of us can, can engage in sports banter and um, we were uh, myself and Lindsay Hooper who set it up we're actually working at Sky at the time and mm. we're a bit frustrated we're a bit um, a bit fed up with not being allowed much of an opinion and so right. we just thought you know what blow it we're just going to start it up and sort of encourage people to chat about it have, have some nice chats between us and our female colleagues and gosh, seven or eight years later now, we've won awards for it. And, and, and I just think it's it's just a different perspective on football. Yeah. It's basically, you know, us talking about our careers, about stuff behind the scenes, but also not necessarily doing the kind of overly technical, tactical analysis. It's just life and football. Yeah, together and, and look how the world has changed. He's out in Doha in Qatar working for Al Jazeera, shaving his hands for the next show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not in any way meant to be a sexist remark. I hope you no, I hope you take that in the, con in the context in which it was meant. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kate. Yeah. We'll hear from you soon, I'm sure. Kate Borsa, uh, Talk Radio's drive co-host with Eamon Home. Not today, uh, but she's also co-founder of the Offside Rule. I mean, have you ever heard anything so ridiculous in your life? I've got a lot of uh, you commenting on YouTube. Aaron says this, I know loads of guys who hate football and who don't want to talk about it. Tad says, my elderly mother-in-law can't get enough of cricket and tennis and she always watches football when she can. Well, of course she does. There's absolutely no reason to suspect that women don't want to hear you talking about football. Unless it's chart and athletic, of course. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I've got text of the day here from Jim, who says, luckily, uh, this is about Huawei, obviously, if the fox does try and get into the hen house and get stuck in the chicken wire, we know who to call. <laughs> That'll be, of course, the famous Julian Morb, uh, QC, uh, the man who seems to have done a, uh, a runner since Boxing Day uh, when he tweeted out that he'd beaten to death a fox with a baseball bat dressed in his wife's kimono. What can I tell you? Uh, all I can really do to make that better is to talk to Tony Blackburn, one of the great legends of this business, of the radio business altogether, uh, because he wants to talk about his very good friend, Mr Nicholas Parsons, who sadly has passed away at the age of 96. Tony, a very good afternoon to you. Yes, good afternoon, Mike. Lovely to talk to you. Very nice to have you on the show. I Thank mean, um, what can you say about Nicholas Parsons other than that he was just a fantastic and tremendous entertainer and, and a man who's had a career that span, that span literally, I think, 74 years or something like that? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, uh, I got to know him in 1967 in the BBC canteen, actually, really? when I joined Radio 1, and he was sitting there having some toast. And I uh, went over to him, and um, he said, lovely to meet you, Brian. <laughs> and uh, and for, for over 25 years, he always called me Brian, because there was another, there was a scriptwriter, I think, called Brian Blackburn. Okay. And I sort of never put him right. 
That's brilliant. And, um, but he I, must have known later that it wasn't that wasn't your name, sure. Well, yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, later on, I went on a, a, one of the shows that he was doing, and he called me Tony. And I said to him, I said, it's the first time you've ever called <laughs> me by my correct name. And he said, don't be silly. Of course I have. But he, 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 he always called me Brian up until recently, and I just never thought of putting him right. It's funny, isn't it? Because that was the year he started, apparently, just a minute. And I'm just going to play you a little bit of yeah. that because we just want to be reminding ourselves of his of his style. Thank you, thank you. Hello, my name is Nicholas Parsons, and once again, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Just a Minute, the ever-popular and highly entertaining game. And with me today, I have four very popular and most entertaining performers. And first of all, we welcome someone, a comedian who is very clever at improvisation, and that is Tony Hawks. And this was from 1999, I believe, when they tried to sort of televise it. They tried it a few times, and it was never as successful as a TV show, was it? No, it, it, it wasn't. I mean, he was very good on television. I mean, he was good on everything. And I saw him, uh, the last time I saw him was about four weeks ago, when he mm. invited us to a charity event he was doing, and he looked very frail. And he was with his lovely wife, Annie. They were a dedicated couple. And um, he had a nasty fall in Edinburgh. Uh -huh. uh, that's what happened, and he never quite recovered from that. And his wife tried... Tried to stop him going on stage, and eventually had to be, because he was just dedicated. He had a, uh, he he had such a sharp mind, but above all, he was such a lovely, kind person. Yeah. Well, strangely nice enough, to... you know, I I yeah. I don't remember any of this because mm. I was I was literally a baby. But my father used to know him because my dad worked for the Daily Sketch and yeah. then the Evening News, and I think Nicholas Parsons had a column or something in one of the papers, and so they knew each other. And I used to I used to go with my parents when I was a baby, literally, to yeah. his house in Hampstead and, and, and paddle around his swimming pool. Oh, he, he yeah, he was just tremendous. I mean, we went to his 90th birthday party, my wife and I, and we gave him a Superman dressing gown. Right. And, um, <laughs> and every time we saw him after that, he said how much he loved it. And uh, but I said, well, we gave you that, because you are, he was a Superman. And he was... But he, he was so talented, and just a minute, uh, you know, his brain was so sharp. Yes. And I remember seeing him at one of, one of the events, and uh, he was very laid back. And, and as soon as his name was mentioned, he just suddenly came to life. He just loved entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I remember listening to, to Just a Minute. It was part of my childhood. You know, my mm. mother constantly had Radio 4 on, as it was then, the home service, listening yep. to The Archers and listening to Just a Minute. And it was that real kind of golden age of radio, wasn't it? Speech oh, radio. Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, uh, I loved some of those um, early Radio 4 programmes, you know, the Goon Show and things like that. Mm. I was brought up with that. I mean, we didn't have the amount of radio stations we have no. now, and Nicholas Parsons was a very important part of that. And um, I'm just very sad he's, he's left us now, but um, the last time I saw him, he wasn't looking well. And I thought, oh dear, you know, I yeah. hope he recovers. But he never quite recovered from that fall. No, I'm looking at some of the pictures of his um, his time um, from Sale of the Century. Um, yeah. And he's surrounded by sort of a lot of bikini-clad hostesses, which is quite <laughs> amusing. You know, I mean, he's gone through almost every kind of show and style that you can think of in broadcasting, isn't he? Absolutely. And he was, he was a great sidekick to people as well. And, uh, you know, he just had that uh, comedy about him. But he, he was just a decent person. Yeah. And, um, I just loved him, you know. We, we, my wife and I both loved him, and his wife Annie, who was terrific as well. Yeah, I'm thinking I saw, and I don't know how old this would be, but r relatively recently I saw a kind of documentary about him and his house because he had this lovely house um, just off Hampstead Heath, which yes, I think is the right, place yeah. that I used to go and visit him in. It was opposite the old Bull and Bush. And, yes. uh, and yes. I think they'd renovated it or something. It might even have been one of those shows about homes of the rich and famous or something. But he was just sitting in his, in his living room talking and he was just such an easy guy to, to watch, really. Well, he was. And, um, I mean, he was such a good friend and uh, he'd ring me up uh, uh, now and then just to see how I was and I, I'd, I'd give him a call occasionally and uh, we just kept in touch like that. But I used to see him around the BBC and, um, you know, he was just one of those great inter great entertainers, and um, he was a good all-rounder. Yes. But just a minute, he absolutely lived for that programme, and he, he only missed about two of them, I think, in the whole run. And it's been going on for years and years. Right. And there's a great quote here. I'm looking at some of his famous quotes from 2015. I believe I would have got more work if I had been more rugged-looking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he could have done any more work, could he? I don't think he could have done any more work. No, I mean he was. I mean he was working right. right I mean right the way up to a few weeks ago, and uh, he just loved it. And he particularly loved doing Edinburgh. Yes. I mean I couldn't believe you know a man of his age going up there and doing a one-man show. And it's and very he, tough to do that as well. Oh, absolutely. But I mean he packed the place out, and um, unfortunately this year he wasn't able to. I think he did one show, yeah. as I remember, and that was it. 
Well, we should uh, all I'll raise a glass. Yeah, we should we'll all raise. All uh, yeah, we will and raise a glass to his uh, memory. I dare yeah. say later on yes. uh, today. Tony, thank you so much, Tony Blackburn, uh, with his own take on Nicholas Parsons, a fantastic entertainer uh, who's been in the business for seventy-four years. I can't believe that uh, there's anyone that doesn't know who that guy is. I think I would have met him later on in his career as well um, at one of those functions I used to do with the Daily Mirror. But um, uh, a sad um, end for uh, Nicholas Parsons. But ninety-six was a pretty good innings, I suppose you'd have to say. Uh, Almost made the 100, didn't quite make it there. Um, 0344 499 1000 is the number. We've got time for a couple more calls before uh, we head off to record planks of the week. Let's talk to Mike, uh, who's in York, wants to talk about VAT. Hello, Mike. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. Afternoon, very well indeed. What could I do for you? Well, first of all, it's good to know that uh, Gary Lineker was listening to us. Uh, if you remember, yes. we did inflate his uh, salary values. That's right. And he's now said that we should make the BBC licence fee voluntary. As I said. <laughs> yes. So, uh, would you volunteer to not pay it? Uh, <laughs> not only would I not pay it, I, I just would. I don't listen to BBC, you know. So, yeah, yeah uh, very, very good choice. <laughs> um, yeah, but what I would like to talk about is the VAT. I know we talked slightly on it before. Mm. Uh, sales tax in America yeah. and VAT. I've just done my uh, self-assessment. Um, um, how's, it, how's it looking? <laughs> Depending... From from a taxman's point of view, very happy. So well, they'll be, yeah, so they'll be very pleased. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't spoken. I, I, everyone I've spoken to this year about their taxes, they've gone up. Well, it's done. It's got more complicated, and that's why I've retired really. Because at one time I knew just exactly where all the money were going and what my wages, right. everything. But now you do it on computer, you mm. kind of scrutinise it yourself, you know, and it, it doesn't kind of register. No, no. You know, look at something. You don't have an exception report button on your computer anymore. That's another Well, thing. I characterise it as the money uh, sort of staying in, in my account for a very short period of time, like a rent sort of scenario, and it goes straight back out again. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind paying tax. It's what they spend it on. And I, I, I find it awful that we're paying money abroad when we've got so yes. many people in need here. Well, this is why I don't approve of uh, giving more money in tax to the government, because they almost always waste it, no matter what that's, they that's do. Right. But that's why I want to talk about sales tax. Because that is one of the items, that's one of the taxes, that's not regressive. It's uh, pay, only paid at the point of um, when you sell something on the, to a customer. Right. Um, VAT is full of fraud. There's tons of it. Oh, yeah. And well, the other thing about VAT that annoys me is that they started off, if you're zero rated, right, where you got to charge at 20%, but you got to claim it back, Um uh, oh, sorry, you got to pay it at 12%, right? They've now changed that to 16 and they're going to change it to 20 as well. So there's going to be no advantage whatsoever uh, to, to being zero rated. Well, the other thing, I've never paid tax. I've always kept under the 80,000, right. so to speak. But the reason why I do that is because I stopped working. I used to stop working in February. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. no, I'm not going to work after February. And loads of people do that. Well, that's, that's crippling our economy. What, you mean so they, they don't have to pay any tax? Yeah, that's well, you don't get involved with VAT. Once you go over the 80,000 threshold, right. then you've got to register VAT. And once you register for VAT, the costs of the work and things like that just spiral. And just It's a madness in so much as if you sell a sandwich in a shop yeah. and they walk out with it, that's all right. But if they eat that sandwich in your shop, then they've got to pay VAT on it. I know. They used to have that ridiculous rule in uh, McDonald's and places like that as well, didn't they? Because if you if you ordered it to, to take away and then you decided, actually, it's raining, I'm going to just sit here and eat it, they'd come and tell you you've got to pay some more money. <laughs> I've never been in a McDonald's. I don't go do that. You've anyway, never been in a McDonald's? No, I don't like it. Are you joking? KFC. How do you know you don't like it if you've never been in one? It's just the buns and things. I'm not that kind, you know. No. Well, you don't like hamburgers? I don't like the breads. You know, like the uh, the kind of buns and things like that. Really? In between is nice, but... Well, get it wrapped in a piece of lettuce like you would do in one of those gourmet places yeah. and then you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, anyway, listen, we're at the end of the show, Mike, for heaven's sake. Uh, we've run out of time. All that talk about VAT uh, is quite upset me. Uh, don't worry, though, we'll be back tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.